Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. Amen. Luke 23, as we dig in today. That's Luke shows the context of Luke chapter 23 is Luke has demonstrated through this gospel who Jesus is. And, and we're getting to the climax of that whole passage of Jesus to the cross, to resurrection, establishing a church, which is Luke's second book, the book of Acts. You think of Luke and Acts as almost one piece or one epic work by Luke. The Godhead was evident in the Last Supper. Luke shows a commanding prophetic voice, even with the whole Peter situation. The disciples then hide. They abandon Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. And the first group of people, these disciples, uh, have a reaction to Jesus' final act of ministry, and that is they run and hide. And then the word then starts up our chapter, Luke 23, then. So in the sense of then, it's important to understand. And I think with Luke, like in Matthew and Mark, we really, the focus is on Jesus. In Luke, the focus is much more on the groups of people around Jesus. And we're going to see today seven different groups of people and how they react to Jesus and how they respond to Jesus. Frankly, for me, it's like all application because I think everyone I meet reacts in one of these seven ways to Jesus Christ. There are basic human reactions, basic human responses to Jesus, and Luke really walks us through each of those. So it says back in chapter 22 that this was an hour of darkness, that the powers of this world are going to start to give Jesus titles that he, that he doesn't ask them to give, but they start to give them. And he recognizes their words, I think, with not in irony, but in like, those are the words that came out of your mouth. So we're going to see a lot of that. The soldiers even say in the last chapter, verse 64, Prophetio, who, who's this that smote you? They call him a prophet with their own words. And in this sense, in verse 67, we see the same thing. The high priest asks if he the, he's the Christ. Jesus doesn't humor that at all. The, the idea of this being an entire thing, but then he speaks to the, the priest, not in response to the question. He says, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. He simply clarifies that the, it's the Son of Man that we're talking about. So prophets were called the Son of Man too. That's not unique to the Christ. So just when Jesus uses that phrase, Son of Man, and then the very next verse, the, the priests respond with Son of God, now we're clear on who we're talking about. And the priests give him a title. Daniel 7.13 talks about a prophet. A prophet is somebody who's set apart for the Word of God, and Daniel predicts a, a particular one. So it can't just be any son of man that we're talking about for Luke. Daniel 7.13, I saw in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man, somebody who speaks the word of God, came with the clouds of heaven and came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. So Daniel's talking about a, someone who speaks the word of God, but it's very different nature than just a normal human prophet. All power and dominion in Daniel 7.14 are given to this son of man prophet. So one of the prophets of human history is going to have the power of God, according to Daniel. So the question here, I think, getting set up for chapter 23, 
when they say, when he says the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God, he's actually bringing them into this question. Are we talking, are you on the same page as me as to who you're accusing? Like, is this Son of Man eternal, timeless, and all-powerful and given all dominion? Which would be a slightly different, very clear term, only used for Messiah, Son of God. The priests say it out of their own mouth in verse 70. Just getting us ready for the chapter. And they say, actually in the Greek, it's, it's phrased where it could either be a statement or a question. There's no question marks in the Greek. And literally, the order of the words is, you then are the Son of God. In English, we get this. You can ask that like a question. You then are the Son of God? You think you're the Son of God? But they say, you then are the Son of God? And that's the clarification there that's going on. And Jesus simply agrees with them. It's like you said. And he does this a couple times. The seed of woman is going to crush the serpent's head. The Son of God, the Messiah, this is the plan A from the beginning of history. Genesis 3.15, this has always been the plan. And he's making that claim. And they say, what further testimony do we need? For we've heard it for ourselves from our own month, which is the beginning of the lies. They didn't hear it from his mouth. He simply had them clarify who they were talking about. And they heard it from their own mouths. And this is the delusion of evil, to be quite frank. They hear things that weren't said. And they twist what happened and what didn't happen. And it's, it's actually extremely common that this happens. You'll say, wait, I never said that. You're putting words in my mouth. And they do this. Jesus doesn't respond to it. He lets it go. But they literally said, you then are the son of God. And it came out of their mouth. So the religious leaders take him to Rome because they're not authorized to execute. So they have a... Then we start chapter 23. Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is, the, is Christ a king. Again, they're twisting the truth from what Luke has presented to us. He takes whatever they can dish out, and I, again, I think this is what we saw in the last chapter. This is the hour of evil. He's just going to let evil have their way for a while. And we found this fellow perverting. They, there's actually not even a noun there. It's just a pronoun. We found this perverting. So they treat, they're starting to dehumanize Jesus. They don't even say his name. And this objectification is another reaction to Jesus. It's a dehumanization process. We found this thing being blasphemous is what they're saying. And then he say, he himself is Christ a king. Again, out of their mouth, they're giving titles. And Jesus is just letting evil do its thing. But the way they say this, it's, they say, he Christ king is, is the order of the Greek. It sounds odd, which is why the Bibles usually translate it into a more normal sentence. But the present infinitive is being used. And this is really curious. And like, this was important to the people listening to this because they told Luke when he interviewed them and they made sure that they got the words right. This was an, the phrasing of this is so unique. The only way that he would word it like this is because this is what was actually said. It's in the present infinitive. What that means is past, present, future. Was, is, will be. He himself was Christ, is Christ, and will be Christ the King. In the present infinitive. They give him the full title of, the, of Messiah. Pilate, being a smart politician, is looking at a guy that's been beat up in front of him. And he's a politician. I mean, he gets the situation. If this guy were really a rebel against Rome, wouldn't the Jewish people love this guy? Why are they bringing this person and accusing him of doing something that they really want to do and setting this guy up for failure? So Pilate 
I think is being fairly shrewd here. Then Pilate asks him, saying, are you the king of the Jews? And he answers him and he says, it's as you say. Again, why would Jesus say, it's as you say, if it were phrased like that as a question? So then you look at the Greek. Once again, he says, and again, the exact order of the wording, and your Bibles maybe have this differently than mine does, but in the New King James, at least, they change the, the order of the words. In the Greek, it says, you are the king of the Jews. Again, could be a question or a statement. And it's worded that way. So when Jesus says, it's as you say in the Greek, that makes a lot more sense than how the phrasing is in my Bible. It's emphatic when he says this. We do know that from the Greek. You are the king of the Jews? You, Jesus? He's looking at this beat up man and, it, and, and, and there's almost like you get a sense from Pilate he doesn't quite get this. But again, Jesus accepts the title. Now he's gotten titles from the soldiers, prophet, from the priests, Messiah, and from Rome, king of the Jews. And in the hour of evil, when they're doing anything they can do to just slap in the face of the almighty God, like God's incarnated himself. This is the only chance in human history for evil to really get its way with God. Because Jesus moves himself into a carnate thing, and there's just this a tone of disbelief coming out of Pilate, yet what comes out of his mouth is exactly the right thing. You are the king of the Jews. John gives tons more detail on this conversation, and I think that lends to the idea, because Luke just skips over these conversations. I think what Luke wants us to see is all the titles he was getting. Because in each interaction, that wording comes up, and it, Jesus is telling the truth here. Pilate likely thinks he's a kind of a harmless, weird Jewish guy. And, and Pilate makes a decision that kind of lends itself to that. Verse 4, So Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no fault in this man. He thinks he's your king. Okay, he's clearly not. And Jews don't have a king. So what's wrong with this? Quite frankly, Caesar calls himself a god. So calling yourself a god is not unknown to the Roman pantheon. In fact, there's tons of people that claim they were birthed or half-birthed from gods running around the Roman Empire. So for Jesus to say, I'm God, is not exactly breaking any Roman laws. To say, I'm God above Caesar? Well, that's a problem. But he doesn't actually go there. He just calls himself a king of the Jews. Pilate thinks this is just a foolish kind of beat-up man. Um, and he's, again, what comes out of his mouth is, I find no fault in this man. That's the verdict. So if he's been brought before Pilate as a court, the, the, Pilate, the, or the courtroom of Pilate says you're an innocent man. So at each of these stages, we're going to also see the world, with as much evil as it can throw at Jesus, keeps saying things like, you're innocent and you're the king. And that's actually what comes out. Verse 5, But they were more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. So this insult to the Jews, Pilate being, I don't see a problem with him saying he's your king. They get really stirred up. And again, we just see this thing. And then they go about accusing Jesus of exactly what they've been doing. Jesus hasn't been stirring people up. They're the ones that have been stirring people up. They're the ones literally bringing Jesus to Pilate, wanting to stir people up. But I think, again, evil sees in other people what's really in their own heart. It's called projecting. It's, uh, it, it's, it's a thing. People do it. And tends to be whatever you struggle with. Another phrase is it takes one to know one. Right? You tend to see in other people the faults that you really need to be struggling with. And they're doing that. So claiming that he stirs up the, the people 
And, but then the Galilee thing comes in in verse 5. And Pilate's ears perk up. Wait, this guy's from Galilee? Oh, and he sees a political opportunity. Verse 6, when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. So is Jesus Galilean? Yeah. Oh, this is a cool chance. Luke, just in case a, a lawyer reads the book of Luke, Luke actually covers jurisdiction and titles and does it completely accurately for the Roman Empire. So, as soon as he knew that he belonged in Herod's jurisdiction, this is a courtroom language, then he sent him to Herod who was in Jerusalem at that time because Herod would be there for the Passover. So he's like, fine, this is Herod's problem. But I also think we get this implication that this was something where Pilate saw it as an opportunity to mend a political bridge that maybe had been burned and that he can do something because we'll get a note here that now Herod and Pilate get along with each other. Evil does this too. One evil reaction is you can have two totally different groups of people in the world, but when it comes to Jesus, they're absolutely united. Anything but Jesus. And so we get to verse 8. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad. So this is like a gift that Pilate sent him. For he desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. What an interesting caricature. Herod wanted to see Jesus. So both Nazareth and Capernaum are in the region of Herod. This is where most of Jesus' ministry was for three and a half years. And that fact that this official legal term of sending, he sent him, means that he recused himself, Pilate, and he put him into another courtroom. And so the word that's getting used there, again, fits the legal um, process. And in verse 8, we see exceedingly glad. Luke puts emphasis on the word glad. Why? Rome has no issues with Jesus at this point. None. And he's, Herod's actually excited to see this traveling prophet. Luke shares the excitement of it. Herod's actually curious about Jesus. So you've got different groups of people responding to Jesus. First note that you've got the disciples that are in hiding. They're ashamed of Jesus. You've got Pilate, who really just doesn't care. It's all about the world's power, and he's just doesn't have a lot of time for Jesus and sends him away. And now we get Herod. Herod's actually curious about Jesus, wants to know more about Jesus, is willing to have conversations. But notice the, the way Luke puts this. He desired for a long time to see him. It's kind of like Jesus is a movie at the theater that you want to go see, but you never get the time to go do it. Or he's a sideshow at a circus and your kids want to go to the rides and not to the sideshow. And Herod seems to be, he's just too busy for Jesus, even though he wants to know it. And the phrase also, he hoped to see. So his ministry, Jesus' ministry was well known. It was in public. Luke's made that very clear that every, all these major things Jesus did were absolutely public. Huge crowds. It was not in doubt at all. And, and Herod doesn't doubt the power of Jesus. He believes Jesus can do miracles because he's hoping to see one. He desires Jesus. He's heard about Jesus. He hopes for Jesus. He actually believes in the power of Jesus via miracles. And yet, he doesn't follow Jesus. And this is the, I think the Herod group is, that's, that's a tragedy. You're very amenable to Jesus Christ, but you're just not going to follow him. And so, Herod accepts all the truths of Jesus Christ. He would say your prayer of salvation with you but he doesn't want to honor and follow Jesus Christ. And he keeps a wall there and a separation. So verse 9, this is an indicator of this kind of person. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. 
You ever meet people that come to the church, come to try to meet Jesus, and all they have are questions and words, and it's all about putting on a dance for that person? So, and there's an arrogance to that. If only Jesus can answer all of my questions, I will follow him. And the many words phrase there, again, it's really unique in the gospel. This whole passage is fairly unique for Luke to write this. But it's kind of a bummer for Herod because Jesus won't dance. I want to see the sideshow. And Jesus is like, no, I'm not going to even answer those questions. If you're coming to Jesus and all you have are words to say, then you can't listen to Jesus. There's, God will then give silence to that. So when it's all about me, when it's all about me getting entertained, when it's all about me getting my questions answered, think of how backwards that is. Well, then you're not ready to listen. And Jesus will actually say, like, I could tell you, but you're not going to hear me. And that's the way that it's, so this, this telling God what you want, many words, theology, debating, Calvinism or not Calvinism, all that nonsense, what people tend to find is a silent God, a God that won't even talk to them because they're trying to look for things to believe. I mean, what an image this is. When people want a display or a dialogue, they tend to get a silent God in response. I'm not going to answer your questions. I've told you what to do. I've, I've modeled the ministry to you. I've said everything that needs to be said. Either you're following and you want to follow, which means you're here to listen, or you're not going to hear from God very much. Herod could have listened to Jesus at any time over three years. Never got around to it. So this hoping to see Jesus has been there for a long time. And the response to that presumption, that arrogance, that pride, is Jesus, and, and the words in the Bible are, he answered him nothing. Many words, nothing. If we approach God thinking he has something to prove to us, our heart is still hard, and it's unready, and it's doomed. And what we're going to get is a silent God. If we come to God on the opposite, if we come to God without many words, just, God, what do you have to teach me today? If you came to church today and you're like, I just need to know what John 24 tells me about life. Just, Lord, I'm ready to hear what you got to say. And I'm going to come and I'm just going to listen. Then those people that come there with a soft heart, ready to hear, ready to listen to what God's word says, again, not what Sean says, what the chapter says. So if I'm given too much commentary, tune me out and read the next chapter. Right? If instead we approach Jesus to learn, we'll tend to find a God that speaks to us. We'll meet God in that state, in that humility. You come to God and you say, how can I live, Lord? How do I live this week? What do you have to teach me? And then for verse 10, and the chief priest and the scribe stood and vehemently accused him. This is our fourth group, by the way. Then Herod with his men of war treated him with contempt and mocked him. Notice how the Herod is, is kind of malleable. He's all over the place, and that's because he's relying on human thinking. He arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and he sent him back to Pilate. Here's your king, Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they'd been at enmity with each other. This is the one thing they get along on, right? People that seek after power, like Pilate, could care less about Jesus. People like Herod are curious about Jesus, but they have too many words. And the two of them get along just fine as two groups of people. They will be partners in anti-Jesus kinds of things. It's amazing how the world unites itself in hatred against Christ. And we see a lot of this. Look at how well atheists and Muslims can agree on shutting down churches. They're happy to do it. 
even though they have no other common ground and there's even enmity between them, they can agree on this. Jesus doesn't need to be taught. Jesus doesn't need to be shared. So Jesus takes whatever the world will throw at him. He's sitting there like, do your best. And their best with Herod is a bunch of words. Um, when it says the chief priests and scribes, verse 10, stood, the word there is also a very particular word, which means they took us or they made a stand. It's not just physical standing up. They, they, they made a stand, they were demanding, and they were insistent. So where Herod's just curious and playing with Jesus, they're able to flip him to actually being hostile to Jesus. Instead of being hopeful or curious, he's dressing him up, mocking him, and kicking him back. So Herod's kind of lukewarm, but the scribes and Pharisees, they're cold towards Jesus. At least they're cold. You know who they are, you know where they're at. And there's a rage into this. They vehemently accused him. The word there is, is often used with animals that are out of control or taught at the end of a leash. It, in fact, the Greek word for vehement means well-stretched or at the totting point. Like right when you pull a rubber band, right before it snaps is the vehement point. It's just, they're just ready to crack. And it reminds me of Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves. Verse 10, they stand, they take a stand, and the rulers take counsel together. Verse 12 in our chapter, against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds and pieces and cast away their cords from us. They're vehement. They're, they're united in this. We have to get rid of Jesus. The anointed one is the question of all of these factions, all people, all time. Who's Jesus? And how do you react to him? Anything but Jesus. Anything but the joy of the Lord. Anything but the hope of the nations. Anything but peace. Anything but love. The real thing is scary to people. So they put a gorgeous robe on him. And again, Luke's emphasizing this. They're dressing him up like a king in total mockery. Luke doesn't really mention the thorny crown at this point. But we know that's there. There's a blasphemy and a denial of Christ. They're at the edge of snapping. This unites the whole world. And it gets there. So he sends him back to Pilate and friends. And this is kind of a mockery of Pilate. And it's a way they get along. Pilate thinks it's funny. And he thinks this is great. All right. Verse 13. Then Pilate, when he'd called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, again, notice the emphasis Luke puts on all these different groups. He said to them, you've brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, there's the verdict. I've found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod. For I sent you back to him, and indeed nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. For it was necessary for him to release one of them to, at a feast. It's odd that Pilate, in the hour of darkness, he still has like a sense of law and order. Like his judgment here is pretty, at, at, frankly, it's still not just because he didn't deserve a beating, much less death. Like everything Jesus has gotten up to this point has not been just. It hasn't been fair. So the, I think Luke's trying to get us like tuned into how unjust this whole thing is. As Gentiles, we don't need to understand Roman law to understand how unfair this whole thing is. But something has, where Pilate still is clinging to justice at some level, that's going to break in the hour of darkness. His sense of justice will fall apart here. So he starts out saying this, verse 13, the people there, the, work is, the word is laos. It means a cluster of everybody else. So all these different groups. 
and they're, they're also being delivered a verdict, but they're passing judgment too. It's not just the Jews in that word laos. It's all of the people assembled in Jerusalem. It's the Romans. It's anybody else that had come up. Apparently there's many Ethiopians there, so there's lots of Ethiopians. You know, we have, there's just, there's different people from different groups of people and the, the entire assembly. So it's hard to blame one group of people for what happened to Jesus. And this has happened in the history of Christianity. We've blamed the Jews. It wasn't just the Jews. And the word there, and the people, means everybody else included. Not just the chief priests, but everybody's looking at this situation. Verse 14, again, the official verdict is this guy's innocent, and Herod said so too. Nothing deserving death. Nothing deserving what you guys are giving to him. I think another thing to note is, of the seven different groups of people, there's only one that wants to kill Jesus. And it's their influence on the other groups that makes it happen. And that this idea that we see Rome as just this horrible thing, there were a brutal leadership, but they lasted for 18 years because they generally, you could trust that the law and order would rule in a Roman court. And so this happens just out of like impact or proper law, proper process. But then in verse 16, now he's adding chastisement. Therefore, I will chastise him and release him. Well, that's another verdict. And the sentence is beat and release, which is an inconsistent verdict with sentence. Why is he getting beaten if he's innocent? Why is he being chastised if he's innocent? And chastised there in the Greek is a soft word. It's a warning. I'm going to let this guy off with a warning. And so you're thinking, wait, they've already beat the tar out of him. Well, the Jews have, yeah. But the Romans aren't going to necessarily jump in on that. A warning from the Romans would be plenty to ward off future troubles. Anybody that fears death or fears a proper scourging would be fine to be let off. With, like that. They would never do it again. But even at that, this idea of releasing him comes out. Again, verse 17, Luke really spends time emphasizing that point. And that at the feast time, the Passover feast, they're going to let go somebody anyways. And they all cried out at once. Again, this, crowd, this crowd seems to be getting out of control, saying, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, who had been thrown in prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder, the things they're accusing Jesus of. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus called out to them, but they shouted saying, crucify him, crucify him. The people that will defend Christians in times of peace tend to fall away when things get ugly. And Pilate is, is like this too. Think of, think of World War II Germany, how many groups of people wanted to actually kill the Jews then. And all it took is one very vocal, loud group of people to trump the majority that were there. And that's what's happening to Jesus. You see this kind of spirit of the mob rise up here. And they, this Barabbas, well, a few things about him. First of all, he is a thief, he is guilty, and he's guilty of everything Jesus was accused of. They prefer the guilty over the innocent. And that the evil spirit of what's going on, again, this, this hour, this, this season of time, law itself is a gift from God, even in the secular world, where innocence and guilt actually matters, right and wrong actually matters. But when, when evil takes over, evil doesn't care about innocent or guilty. Everybody that it wants to get is going to get it and the law becomes irrelevant. Evil only serves evil. And the innocence of Jesus is simply irrelevant in this hour of human history. It's inconvenient that these people we want to kill happen to be innocent. So in verse 19, the one they choose that is actually guilty, he was caught. His name, ironically, is Bar, the son of, and Abba, the father. He's the son of the father. So having a, a name that fits, 
He's not the son of God. He's the son of the father. But they choose the carnal son of God over the heavenly son of God in this situation. And all five groups so far, they leave Jesus to the hatred, the condemnation, the humanity. They all choose or allow evil to happen, even the disciples. Praise God there's redemption for those people. And they cry out all at once. And then in verse 21 it says, but they. In the end, the mob is setting the rules, not Rome. Rome has lost control of the situation. There is a hate and a rage here that is, it would be kind of scary. If you've ever been around a mob that's losing it, it's, it, you can feel that edge of sanity going away. And if you've seen video clips of mobs gone wild, things get destroyed. And there's just a rage that comes out of the human soul where there's a permission that a mob allows. And that crying out that's being phrased here, there is just a tension here that's about to lose it. The vehemence is actually going to go past being taught and they're going to snap. And that's the, the setup that Luke's got for us. The shouted there in the Greek is an over and over and over ongoing present tense shouting. It is just this wave after wave of crucify him, crucify him. And it's getting louder and louder and it's nonstop. They're guilty of roiling up the people, but the people are guilty for being roiled up. And the Romans are guilty for giving into the situation. Even <clears throat> curious, excited people that wanted to hear more from Jesus, he's, Herod's going along with it too. And the disciples are still in hiding. They're not getting out there trying to stop this. Humanity is breaking in every area. It's like ice cracking when you walk on it. And it's all just giving in. And Luke, I think, does an excellent job of this image of what they have. And the crucify him. What they're asking for there is the worst, most humiliating, most painful punishment that humanity had conceived of to that date. The idea of crucifixion isn't just hanging on a cross. It's stripping the guy naked, walking him through town with the beam, the cross beam on his shoulders, and having every... And they don't take a straight route from the courthouse to the hill. They take this loopy-doopy route through town so everybody who wants to throw things at him can throw things at him. And they put his crime above his head because the Romans wanted to make sure that everybody knew what the crime was that deserves this punishment. It's humiliating. It's cruel. It's torturous. It was first made by the Assyrians, but the Romans perfected this strategy. Every major Roman town would have a court. The bigger towns might have a coliseum. They had libraries, but outside the main gate, they had a hill with posts. And there were generally people hanging on those posts all the time. And it was to say, when you come into this town, you're coming into a Roman town. So everybody knew where Golgotha was. Everybody knew where the hill was. So when they're saying crucify him, they know exactly what they're asking for. And they repeat it, verse 16. Crucify him. And then he said to them the third time, Why? What, ha what evil has he done? I've found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. This is the third verdict from Pilate, three times. I just, and he's got will at this point in verse 22. You'd think if the story ended here, Jesus would get off the hook, off the cross. So there's, there's this sanity coming through Pilate, but the sanity is going to give in to this crowd. It, what Pilate struggles with is he's, he's, even though it's a strong will and a sense of justice, it's a sense of justice without a foundation. And when you have a sense of justice in the, in the secular, in the worldly, or in the carnal way, that's a ship without a rudder. 
it's a ship and it moves and it floats. And for a long time, the Roman Empire can carry on as has been, but the spirit of the age will ultimately guide human senses of justice, senses of right and wrong. And this is one of the favorite things right now on the person on the street strategy is they'll tie somebody in a knot and they'll find that point of your logic. But ultimately, the human logic will always give way to the, t the tides of the culture. And you're a ship blown about in the storm without any direction. A voice crying, desperately trying to hold on to some law and order in this situation, trying to hold on to some control. But at the end of the day, verse 23, but they were insistent. Again, psh, snapping, the cord's going, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. And he released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison, but he delivered Jesus to their will. Not to justice, not to law and order, or even his own verdict. But he just gives him over. They were insistent and demanding. This is the worst of evil. Self-righteous, demanding of the death or canceling of somebody that they don't like. And this is what evil does when it gets licensed to run things. Silencing a teacher without cause, without guilt, they don't care. That teacher disagrees with them, that's the end of the conversation. They don't want a, a just situation. What's odd is Christians often try to rationalize or discuss with these people. There's no rationality to people that have given up reason completely. If people just are this vehement, this loud, and again, the voices there, notice that it doesn't say their voices. Do you see that? That's accurate. It's, it says demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. The word in the Greek there is demanding with the voices. The, 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 there is a, a voice in verse 23, and the voices of these men, not and their voices, but the voice. There's something outside of humanity happening in this crowd. There is a spirit of evil here that's being given attention to at some level. There's a rising up of a mob mentality. And the loud voices, there's an increasing nature to this. And frankly, like Luke puts way more focus on the crowds than he does on the punishment of Jesus, which is why I'm blessedly not going to get into all of the brutal things they did to Jesus. That's a Matthew or a Mark discussion. But knowing what evil looks like is important for us as believers too. We have to understand, waffling, Pilate not being certain, creates an opportunity for evil. A yes and a no from a believer or for people in charge and people in rule creates an environment of law and order. But the, when the crowd just keeps going again, the, loud, the voice, this loudness that comes, Pilate can barely talk over this voice. It's just this din of, and he can't get anything. Until you give them what they want, they will get louder and louder and louder. And then when you give them what they want, they're going to want more. It's like when you give a moose a muffin. It doesn't stop with the muffin. It just keeps growing and getting more. These men, the way Luke phrases this is a reflection of how they talked about Jesus when they said, this man. When Luke says, these men, it's almost using that same kind of language where he's almost dehumanizing them. These people, these fellows, this mob that's out there. When people fully give themselves over to evil, evil has a personality too. And it's, what starts as appealing or even desirable, because sin is desirable to the carnal person. 
To the, those not following the Lord, sin is appealing as heck. It, it's even enjoyable. But ultimately, it leads to a sad loss of control and the destruction of the person. And God knows this, which is why he tells us not to do those things that at the outset look appealing. Going downtown to join the mob and be part of the crowd? Man, that sounds like fun. Let's go see what's going on. Looks like Pilate's going to kill somebody. And they jump in. But next thing you know, they're participating in something that's just awful. So he delivers Jesus. As a leader, Pilate is not known as a weak leader. But in the hour of darkness, he's weak. And he just gives in. Since when did Rome give in to the Jews? Ever. We're going to see, you know, not in the scriptures, but later on in history, the Romans in AD 70 are going to slaughter millions of Jews. They don't care about Jewish lives. So what happened to Pilate here? What happened to the, the, the Roman leadership? He could have stopped this, but it was easier to give in. And there's a perception that justice can be set aside for convenience. And people of integrity don't do that. They go with justice even when it's inconvenient. They go with mercy even when it's inconvenient. But ungodly people, people that aren't following the Lord, there is a point at which they just break and that the convenience takes over. Well, this just isn't worth it. And he gives them over, and the last three words are so damning, to their will. Whatever is going to make these angry people happy, I'm just going to give in to it. And folks, that's how cultures decay and rot. That's how families break apart, is when the person who's in sin just gets their way because other people are just too tired to deal with it. They don't want to be honest. They don't want to get in there. And the human will is to rule and have say over God. Goodness, mercy, truth, justice, all of them stand against the base human will. And, and Pilate just gives them over to their will when he should have said no and, and called out the troops saying, settle down because this isn't going to happen. So Luke has shown the titles given to Jesus, the innocence that Jesus had, and he's showing how the human system of Rome utterly fails Jesus. The Romans don't save an innocent man. And justice and law and order is what the Romans were all about. So they've lost their high ground morally at any level. Now, verse 26, now starting kind of a different thought. As they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, which means he's from Africa, northern Africa, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it, bear, bear it after Jesus. So Simon, a Cyrenian, he's from North Africa, um, as Jesus taught. You know, it's interesting, his disciples aren't there, but Simon becomes the first, where Barabbas is the first person to have his life saved by Jesus. Like literally Jesus gives his life instead of Barabbas. Simon's the first person to do what he commanded the disciples to do in Luke 14, 27. Back in Luke 14, he said, And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So Simon becomes, a non-disciple becomes the first person to carry the cross. Like with Jesus alongside of him. He does it against his will. So we can't make him into a hero here. Like the Romans pull him and say, you're going to carry that. Which means he's probably a physical, like when you looked at this guy, he appeared like a guy who could carry a 100-pound beam. So Simon's probably a big guy. And he lays the cross on his shoulders. And Jesus, what this indicates, I think Luke offhandedly is pointing out, Jesus has been so beaten, he can't really lift this thing and take the trip. But they're going to make him, of course, have the sign likely hung around his neck. And they call on somebody else to carry the crossbar. 
but they're still marching Jesus through the town as they do this. Um, interestingly, there is strong indication that um, Simon becomes a believer. And the reason I say that is Mark 15, 21. It is new, noted that this Simon has a son named Rufus. And in Romans 16, 13, Rufus is one of the people Paul's greets as a leader of a church. So Simon and his kids, uh, Simon's the first person to take up the cross, and his kids, at least one of them, Rufus, becomes a leader in the church later on. So there's spiritual things going on here that you can only piece together, you know, outside of the text. Then we get this other piece here, these daughters that Jesus talks to. Again, this, this passage coming up in verse 27 is only in Luke. It's not in the other Gospels, so which then is a clue to what is Luke trying to communicate. So he gives us another group of people. And a great multitude of people followed him. It's not the kind of following that we've talked about the whole gospel. And, and women also mourned and lamented him. So here's this another group of people, these women that are just tore up about Jesus. But Jesus turning to them said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and breasts which never nursed, then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. He's quoting Hosea 10 when he says this. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? Where other gospels dwell on the duress of Jesus, Luke still has Jesus teaching people in the middle of this. Right? That's a whole different image from Matthew. The focus here is on the groups of people and how they respond to Jesus. And, here, and, and Luke, again, shares this, this another, here's another group, these daughters of Jerusalem, a group of women. They see the injustice of it. They're powerless to do anything about it. And, and where most people see this killing as like a great afternoon's entertainment, these women are ripped up about it. This is horrible, what they're doing to Jesus. It actually breaks their heart. And Luke wants us to know that not everybody was okay with killing Jesus. The systems of the government failed Jesus and there was a mixed group of people in the audience. And Luke takes, you know, four verses to go out of his way to let us know that. There's this group here just crying. So this weeping that they do. What's interesting is they get corrected by Jesus too. And I want, this is, that's interesting for me to tune into at least. So for this group, they weren't necessarily at Pilate's court. They weren't necessarily at Herod's court. They didn't speak up or do it, maybe because they couldn't. But this group of people deserves correction from Jesus also. This is interesting. It is also a very human, carnal reaction to hear about Jesus and think that was horrible. What they did to Jesus was wrong. It is not, it, it's a human reaction. And in some sense, Jesus' correction to these people, again, you're saying, where does he correct them? He says, don't weep for me. Stop what you're doing. Don't cry when you hear about the crucifixion. It's not the end of the story. You should think about what, verse 29, the days that are coming. Don't think about right now. Think about what's coming. Pray for yourselves. This is the same thing he told the disciples in the garden. He asked them to pray beforehand, but while this hour of evil is happening, he's asking these women to pray during it. And later, we're going to see he encourages the disciples to keep praying about what's coming next. It's a human reaction to just dwell on the crucifixion to keep Christ on the cross, so to speak, to think about what he endured, what he was punished. And again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't teach this in Matthew because I think Matthew wanted us to see it. But Luke's pointing our attention everywhere else 
and in order for us to learn too. Don't weep for Jesus. It seems heroic, like stoic even. Don't weep for me. I will endure this. Um, it's, it even seems kind of harsh. Like, why wouldn't you let these women cry? Like, why wouldn't you want them to be all tore up about the crucifixion? No men stood with Jesus. At least these women are crying for Jesus. So to understand what's happening, I think that verse 31 becomes really important. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? Well, that's a, again, this is only in Luke. You think it's bad what evil is happening when the Messiah is with you in the green wood, when there's life in the middle of the thing? What's going to happen when I'm not with you? What are the evils that will be done on this planet when I'm not here to stop or prevent or back off some of these things? Their fault isn't in the mourning. I think we naturally mourn. I think their fault is in understanding the work that's being done. That the cross was a necessary piece of this cosmic play that's being carried out. What we can do today then is to be believers in a loving, miracle-working, just God and spend our days celebrating those things. I think the temptation or application for us today is we can spend all of our days bemoaning the evils of the world. Look at all the bad things that are happening and we put our eyes on evil instead of putting our eyes on good. You know, I know so-and-so and they're suffering and I know so-and-so and they're suffering. And we get some food off of that a little bit, right? Because I'm aware of everyone who's suffering around me. And look at how great I am that I'm tuned in to the pains of what's going on. Look at how well I mourn for others. But Jesus says, pray for yourself. Pray for what's going on in your heart. Pray for what's coming up next. And, and he redirects their eyes. Instead of looking at the snakes, look at the cross. Put your eyes on the right place. And look at what's coming of the cross, not what's happening on the cross. There's a resurrection that's coming. Pray for what it's going to be like when Jesus isn't with us incarnate and what that's going to be. Hosea 10 doesn't end in mourning, by the way. He's quoting Hosea 10. And I just want to point out that it has one verse that makes a very similar command. Jesus is thinking of the whole chapter of Hosea 10. Hosea 10, verse 11. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground, for it's time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness upon you. Don't mourn. Don't always be looking at the evil. It's time to seek the Lord and, and ask the Lord for what's there. If God is life, then live. If God's good, then celebrate. If God's right, then be righteous. If God is a man of peace, then be a person of peace. If we believe in Jesus with our words and then deny him with our lifestyle, we're like these ladies in the crowd. We're mourning when we shouldn't be mourning. We should be a people that live slightly different regardless of the evil we see around us. And let's be honest, that doesn't mean we're naive or clueless, like we ignore the evil around us. The world is unjust, it's evil, it's mobified, but we have to sow righteousness and bring mercy and seek justice in the middle of all that. We're to be lights to the world. And in this sense, again, it seems like such a harsh thing to say to these women. You don't cry just because you fake it. They're really ripped up about what's happening in front of them. But it's a hard message from God to be, put your eyes on the Lord instead of losing yourself over to this mourning, this constant depression of attitude. Give yourself to joy. Rejoice. 
So we have in this passage different groups. I'm going to just review the six groups that we have. We got the disciples from chapter 22, 24 through 60. They're worried about being associated with Jesus. They're, they don't stand with them. They run and hide. They're big talkers, but they're broken and ashamed at the end of the day. They're cowards. First group of people. God bless them. They're not always going to be cowards, but right now they are. Then you've got the embedded religious priesthood, chapter 22, 66. There's an envy and a pride of religious leadership. They think they're right, the self-righteous. And they become the most violent towards godly people or Jesus in this situation. Then you got pilots or the pilot type people in verse 1. They're worried about position, politics, and wealth. They just want power and they want titles. And anything that threatens that, they'll break their morals to get it. Earthly kingdoms, people. So you got cowards, self-righteous, earthly kingdoms. Then you got the Herods. Herods and Pilots are not the same. Herod people are selfish and they engage only in the things that amuse them. And when things stop amusing them, they move on. So Christianity is great as long as it amuses me. Narcissism, hedonism, that's Herod. So cowards, self-righteous, earthly kingdoms, narcissists. And then you get the crowds or the people, this verse 13. Quite frankly, what do you call these people? They don't have any will of their own. Their only will is evil. They're, they're just going along with whatever. It's the same group of people that were cheering Jesus when he came in a few days ago. Now they want to kill Jesus. They, have, they are the masses or dullards. They don't think. They just take whatever the world sends them and they believe it without thought, without consideration. And then this group in verse 27, the mourners, those that mourn Jesus publicly. And they want everybody to be sad with them. And so you could call them downers, right? Here's Jesus and I'm just going to be downcast all the time. Why be downcast, O oh my soul? Cowards, self-righteous, earthly kingdoms, narcissists, dullers, and downers. Six different groups of people that indicate the different ways people are reacting to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. All human reactions, all legit, at some level, I've been all six of these. And I'm guessing you could, if you really think through your past, you could probably put yourself in every one of those positions at some point or another. Luke then shares one more group. And I, honestly, I don't think the focus here is on the suffering of Jesus. The focus is on these other people. Verse 32, there were also two others criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, which means hill of the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Remember James and John were arguing who would get to sit at the right hand of Jesus? Well, a criminal got that spot. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they'll do. In Matthew and Mark, it sounds like he's praying for the crowd, remember? But here the way Luke sets it up, he's, it's the same words, but Luke's like, I think maybe he's praying for the two criminals on either side of him. He's praying for the people right next to him in life. Extremely edited version. If you want to get the more full story, you can go to the other Gospels. Literally, Luke just says they crucified him. That's it. That's all the detail we get. And he's assuming the reader knows what a crucifixion is. And I'm guessing, like many people, Luke just doesn't want to dwell on it. So he focuses on the people, not Jesus. Uh, biblically speaking, there, there are some church traditions that say there were 14 stations on the way to the cross. I, I hope you notice there's not 14 stations anywhere in this text. In fact, the only indication we get is some spot where Simon took the cross beam from Jesus. 
But otherwise, the Bible has no indication of these unique spots. So some think verse 34, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Um, it's not in all of the ancient Greek texts. So some people think it might have been added later on. It was in the other Gospels. And in those Gospels, they believe that that was part of the original text. So it's possible that other people trying to read Luke were like, boy, I just, I want that line from Matthew and they put it in there. That said, some ancient Greek versions have verse 34, some don't. The fact that other Gospels have it doesn't mean that it's untrue. But here's a thought. If Luke's focus is all the other groups of people, then verse 34 is really out of place. Because in verse 35, they go right back to the other, they're talking about the criminals. And so Luke, if you're reading all these seven groups as we go through this passage, 34 feels kind of out of place. Um, that said, it's a good edition and it's in our Bible, so I'm going to say it's an inspired edition to be reminded that, that Jesus doesn't hate on all seven groups of these people. That's not how God operates. The heart of Jesus, after we've seen the first six groups, the heart of Jesus is to love these people. And our hearts should be the same. We're not here to just argue with Pilate or Herod or the, the masses or the religious elite. We're here to pray that they will come, to intercede for them in prayer. So then, and they divided his garments and they cast lots. So referring to the soldiers, not the, the criminals. And the people stood looking on. Again, verse 35, we're back to the people. The people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. In victory, you'd think these people would be happy. But remember I said you give evil what it wants? It just delights in it. They're not happy. They're sneering still. They didn't get their peace and joy by killing Jesus. In fact, what they got were harder hearts. They got what they wanted, and they're still upset. Then we get to verse 36, back to the soldiers. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself, giving him the title, doing the same thing. Luke's doing a quick review here. The people, the rulers, the soldiers, the disciples are, are, are not around anymore. The, the women are, are not being rebuked anymore. And an inscription also was written over him in the letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews, declared in all languages. Again, this is Luke. He's writing to Gentiles. Everybody could see what his title was and why he was being killed. And it gets back to that question, who is Jesus and how do we react to him? Who's the Christ? Who's the Messiah? Who's the king of the Jews? And if we can identify that Jesus is the king, how we react to him becomes the only question that's left in life. The sign would be marched in front of Jesus or hung around his neck and then put an over him on the cross, hanging over him. Isaiah 53, 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with transgressions, and bore the sins of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Like Isaiah called all of these. This was always the plan. And the prayer of Jesus, along with these scenes getting filled in, Luke's fulfilling all these prophecies. And the last few verses show us all of this is happening. But all six groups are looking at Jesus, and all six groups see the same title and believe or don't believe he's committed a crime in having that title. Then, verse 38, one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us. Why don't you save us too? So one of this criminal group 
these lawbreakers, one of them joins right in with the crowd, just starts, how and in what state do you have to be in to start mocking the next guy over on a cross? Like, what goes through somebody's head? You're hanging in pain and, and on your way to die, and this guy starts mocking people right up to his deathbed. He's going to act like that. Joins right in. Like, does he think he's got friends in the crowd or something? Like, is he making buddies? I don't think it's peer pressure. I think it's the heart of mankind that no matter how bad the situation, some people want God and some people don't. Uh, Luke uses the word blasphemy here. Luke calls it what it is. Uh, verse 35 and verse 36 then are both blasphemy too. Blasphemy is impious speech or reviling God through your words. And so as he does this, he's, he's committing blasphemy. Verse 40, but the other answering rebuked him. This is like one guy's picking on him and the other guy, and again, they're hanging on crosses. So to speak costs lung energy. This would hurt them to say these words. So one takes all their dying energy to curse Jesus, and the other one sticks up for him. I think a kid's on a playground when a bully's picking on a kid, and a good person shows up and says, hey, leave him alone. And so you got this other criminal that has some seed of a sense of right and wrong, and he rebukes him saying, verse 40, do you not even fear God? Seeing you're under the same condemnation just points out to him, you're on a cross too, you idiot. And indeed, if we indeed justly, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Even the guy on the cross, who clearly was not in the courtroom necessarily, sees the injustice of the whole situation. And here's the seventh option, right? The first six options were all carnal, but there's something different about this last one. We, reacting to Jesus under the law is to recognize that it's unjust, recognize that we're condemned, recognize that we're just as good as anybody else hanging on a cross. Doomed for our will alone. And he brings the word justly into it. Again, a theme for, for Luke's presentation of this. To know justice is to understand that there's a due reward coming for our selfishness and our sin. We deserve what we got coming. We've fallen short, and we deserve hell itself. And that's that, the simplicity of what this guy says. And then he says, we receive due reward. We're actually getting the consequence of what we did. We deserve to be on a cross. We deserve this death. The, on, the only thing different about the second criminal from the first, it's not their actions or their past. The first one just admits it. Yeah. And he takes responsibility for it. I was unrighteous. I deserve what I got. And then he says, this man, same phrasing, barely even humanizing Christ. You see an injustice there. You don't have to be a Christian to see that this is unjust. And what they did to Jesus. And a lot of non-Christians are like Herod. They're like, yeah, I, Jesus was a great teacher and he you know, didn't deserve to be crucified. That was bad. But I, you know, they're just not following the guy. So he speaks truthfully. Jesus was innocent. There was nothing wrong in Jesus. Same as Pilate, but this guy says the same words, but he says them in faith. This guy's innocent. If truth mattered to Pilate, he would have stuck to his verdict. But truth matters to this guy, he's going to actually repent. So the priests, the women that were told to be different, there's this desire of Jesus to see it. If Luke's audience can relate to this text, if I can relate to this text, I can see how unjust all of this was and how many people perceived the crucifixion the wrong way. 
I don't have to be a believer to understand what we just read is evil unleashed. This is humanity and the worst that you get of it. I do have to have something in addition to my intellect to understand that I'm also a part of this. That in the hour of darkness, I likely would have been in one of the first six groups. And if I can confess that and understand it, it takes something different. In other passages, we're going to see that's the Holy Spirit that just gets you to understand you're part of those six failings too. And in verse 42, then he said to Jesus, again, this is the one thing this guy does different. He just says, Lord, remember me when, we come in, when you come into your kingdom. First of all, he uses the word Lord, humbling himself to the leadership of another. God's in charge, not me. That's not like Herod. Herod was in charge. He humbles himself. He asks to be remembered. He doesn't have many words. He doesn't tell him what it is. He's not putting Jesus on trial. He's just saying, remember me. He's not asking for position like the disciples did. He doesn't make demands of Jesus like the courts did and the priests did. He doesn't mourn Jesus and go, oh, I feel so bad you're on this cross. So horrible. He doesn't go there. He just says, remember me. What a, just be merciful. And then he says, when you come into your kingdom, somewhere along the line, this criminal heard the message of Jesus, that Jesus was starting a kingdom. Or there's a thing over his head saying, king of the Jews. So when you say, when you come into your kingdom, he's saying that on faith. He believes Jesus is going somewhere after this crucifixion thing is over. And that's where he puts his focus. So that one question, who is Jesus? Respond to that with humility. He's our Lord. Respond to it knowing that it's only Jesus that can have mercy on us and remember us. It's only Jesus that's inheriting that kingdom. And anybody else inheriting the kingdom will be given that inheritance through Jesus Christ. He's the one that's, it's his kingdom. So he gets everything right in one sentence. This world is nuts and we're all hanging on crosses and all we can do is turn to Jesus and say, please remember me, Jesus. That's all we, it, the, the world is nuts. It's patronizing to Jesus. It belittles Jesus. But there is a sweetness to this criminal. I don't care what he did. There's a sweetness to him sticking up for Jesus on a cross saying, I can see what's going on is wrong. And he tells the other criminal to shut up. I'm going to treat Jesus with respect. I think Luke has been setting up this scene since chapter 22. This is faith. Every other group gets it wrong. This group gets it. So there's a seventh group I'm going to call followers. And Peter's not the first follower. Really, when you think of this, this guy is the first follower. There's something in him that tells him Jesus is going to rule. That or, or maybe he's just humoring him. You know, like when you got somebody with, that doesn't quite see the world normally like other people and everybody's picking on him at school and you're just, hey, hey, just leave the kid alone. You know, hey, when you go see your unicorns at home this afternoon, I just want you to, you know, think of me and maybe I'll come over and ride your unicorns too. Maybe he's just humoring Jesus and he thinks Jesus is delusional. That's a possibility. I've heard that argument, but I just don't think that's the tone Luke has set this up with. I don't think that's what Luke is presenting to us in this criminal. What he's presenting to us is faith. This guy's not ashamed. He's not worried what people will think or what title he's going to get. He's not prideful and arrogant and coming at Jesus with many words. He's not striving and trying to get something out of Jesus. He's not selfish and he's not mourning. Like all of those six things are off to the side. He is strong and courageous 
He doesn't worry what anybody in the crowd hears. He only cares about his relationship with Jesus Christ, trusting Jesus, knowing the justice of Jesus and mercy are better than humanity, and humbling himself and calling him Lord. He's a kingdom seeker, and he's not of this world, even though he's dying on a cross. Mark 12, 33, and to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than the whole of all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When you see Jesus on the cross, it's not to mourn Jesus on the cross, it's to ask Jesus for mercy. To see that this is a just man being killed, saying, I love you, I love you, Jesus, you are right, you are true, you're the way, please remember me. Think of me. I can't, I, I'll, yes, I'm going to beat this point a little bit. He is unlike the disciples. They were cowards. This guy's actually hanging alongside Jesus. He's with Jesus in the end, where Peter wanted to be. He is not self-righteous like the priests. He is not stretched taut. He's not hateful. He's merciful, kind, and welcoming. He is not like Pilate, worried about earthly kingdoms. Clearly, he's lost that battle if he's hanging on a cross. He's not like Herod, worried only about himself, wanting Jesus to perform a trick and entertain him. He is not like the crowds, like the dullards. He's not going along with the mockery like the first criminal did. He's not just jumping in without thinking. And he's not like the mourners, fearing, feeling sorry for himself. He's looking to eternity. This world, yes, I'm on a cross. It's not a good experience. But I'm looking for eternity. I'm not, not going to complain about my current state. And then he says, when you come. It's just amazing. The friendship failed Jesus. The religion failed Jesus. The Roman justice system failed Jesus. The government itself failed Jesus. Humanity failed Jesus. But this one criminal gets it right. One individual sinner says, please give me mercy. That's it. That's the seventh group is one guy. He's courageous, humble, just, caring, independent, and hopeful. And that defines God's people for all of eternity. My prayer is that I'm like that too. That I exhibit the, the same traits this guy did in one sentence. All my days. He can't help himself, but he can ask Jesus for that help. To be remembered at the real court. And here's the last verse of the chapter. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you. Not, he's saying it on his own authority. I say to you. Today you will be with me in paradise. Amen. No matter what tone or intent of the speaker, Jesus takes him at his word. Right? Even if he's humoring Jesus, he's still going to take him at his word. And he assumes that there is life after crucifixion. There is life after this life. Whatever struggles we have, pains we have, no matter how broken we have, there is a promise by God for a paradise that comes after this one. He says, assuredly, which means you can trust one thing, and that's what you asked for. If you believe and humbly receive the sacrifice of Jesus, that he dies for you, if you know your punishment is just and you deserve punishment, then you can ask to be part of the kingdom, the domain, the family of God, and Jesus will welcome you in. I love that this guy's the first person to ask for salvation because he's a criminal on a cross. He, he, there is no opportunity for him to do good works. He doesn't even have the chance to prove his love for Jesus. The only thing getting him into paradise is his heart and the disposition and direction of it. There's nothing he can do in his own power. There's nothing he can fix. 
He's already dangling over the pit. All he can do is ask for a hand to come under him and pull him away. That's all he's got. And he becomes the model of how the church is going to get built. The first church member died before there was a church on a cross. He says, when you come, Jesus answers that in verse 43 by saying, today, instant. When you come, it's going to happen right now. And he says, remember me. And Jesus says, you're going to be with me. He exceeds expectations. It's not some, I'm not going to just remember you. You're going to be with me. I'm going to, we're going to get to know each other for all of eternity. He exceeds expectations too. He's just like, remember me in your kingdom. And he's like, you're going to be with me in paradise. The word there for paradise in, is the same word uh, that the Greeks use for garden, that when you read the Septuagint, it's the same word they used in Genesis 2.8. It's the garden. You're going to be back with me. There's a lot of gardens in the Bible. That's a whole sermon. But it's way better than just a kingdom. It's a paradise. It's the place. And you're going to be with me in it. So, again, we'll wrap up the chapter, but the idea here is not to cling to shame like the disciples. Don't cling to intellect, pride, greed, or lamenting and mourning and walking through life with a dour face. Cling to Jesus alone. Let your will go and let Jesus' promise hold tight. And that's the whole thing. And what's coming next is a paradise. I, honestly, the tone here is so much lighter than Matthew and Mark so much more hopeful that even in the middle of this, Jesus is teaching and he's making promises and he's counseling. And when Jesus speaks, it causes him pain to even do it when you're on a cross. But it's so important what he's saying and what he's sharing in these moments. And I think Luke is just, I mean, he's got this opportunity to record this history and share it with his Roman benefactor. And he's thinking, this is a chance to share the gospel, with my, to do history as a job, but use my job to share the gospel with people. And he uses the crucifixion not to bemoan how horrible it was. Every Roman knows that. He uses the crucifixion to show a prayer of salvation and what that looks like. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we come before you with the same prayer. Remember us as you're in your paradise now. Lord, we just want to be with you. We don't have any demands or any will. Lord, you don't need to prove anything to us. You've proven everything. And Lord, we have so much and so little to give to you all at the same time. We can give you our heart, our soul, our strength. But at the same token, Lord, at the end of the day, we don't have anything more to offer you than what the criminal had, which is simply the desire to be with you. So Lord, help us to search our hearts. Know if what's at the bottom of our heart, if it's cowardice and shame, pride, greed, arrogance, dullness, Lord, help us, or, or mourning and sadness, Lord, help us to take those things, put them on the altar, and give them up. Lord, help our, our what to be deep in our heart at the very core. May you plant in us a seed of the Holy Spirit that what is at the bottom of our heart is hope, a hope for a paradise with you. And Lord, may that be the thing that guides us and leads us. May we not act in fear or in shame. May we not try to get titles or, or seek after amusement. Lord, help us to seek after you and your kingdom first. And Lord, help that to be something that we're not just here to go through the motions or put on an act, but that's who we are. Lord, help us to forgive one another in our, in our crimes that deserve a cross so that we can be the people of God, forgiving and loving and caring regardless of our differences and regardless of who we are. Lord, if we've wronged anyone or trespassed against anyone, we deserve the punishment we have coming to us. And Lord, all we can ask for is your mercy and your grace.
So we put ourselves before you and at your mercy, Lord, in Jesus' name.